Friends, thank you again for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to a new episode of the Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast. This is a one-up offering today. These shows are generally a little shorter than the typical episode. Digest-sized, I hope. Today, we're going to be talking about a classic maze shooter that was released for Mattel Electronics and Television back in 1982. I'm talking about the one and only Night Stalker. I believe I have in the past shared that early on during the video game craze, at least in our household, we were pretty much Team Atari. That doesn't mean I didn't want the Intellivision, especially when I saw those Tron games in action at my local Kmart. It's just that, since the majority of the games that were bought for me, by the time the Intellivision hit the shelves were predominantly Atari, I guess it didn't make much sense to my grandmother or father to start buying a new system and games. Now, I believe it was in 1983 when we picked up our first Intellivision system, thanks to a garage sale my grandmother was able to hit while I was slaving away at school. It certainly made for a nice treat when I got home. Being a latchkey kid, I would always call my grandparents when I made it home from school. She told me she had picked up something new and to tell my father when he got home to drive on down so I could see it. The first game I ever played on the Intellivision was 1982's Lock and Chase, the port of the Data East arcade game of the same name. Obviously, the Intellivision's control pads took some getting used to. That spinner wheel and keypad was a far cry from the more familiar Atari joystick. But in the long run, I came to realize that, depending on the game, you had far more control. Whether that be ducking and diving with Tron, or pulling off mid-air stunts in biplanes. My grandmother purchased 10 games at that garage sale. Besides Lock and Chase, she also picked up Star Strike, Astro Smash, Armor Battle, Sea Battle, Triple Action, Space Hawk, Space Armada, Las Vegas Poker and Blackjack, and of course, Night Stalker. In future 1UP episodes of the podcast, I'll share some of my memories of the games I've just mentioned, but it would be the absolute truth to say that of those original 10, the two games we played the most were Lock and Chase as well as Night Stalker. Obviously, the graphics for the Intellivision games were a step up at that point from what we were accustomed to with the Atari 2600. It was the gameplay, however, that really drew me in with Night Stalker. Well, to be fair, when I saw the name of the game on the side of the box, I thought it was actually a game based off of Kolchak the Night Stalker, the TV series. And really, an enterprising modder could probably pull that off. The Intellivision may have made its debut 39 years ago, but we fans of that exceptional and short-lived Kolchak the Night Stalker series are still waiting for that perfect video game. Anyway, Night Stalker which began its life being called Attacker, was designed and programmed by Steve Montero. And, oddly enough, this is the only credit I could find for him. Although, thanks to the Arcade History site, I did read that he was assigned to a space shuttle title for the Intellivision, after Night Stalker, which appears to have been nearly completed. Furthermore, it would have been one of the handful of Intellivoice games that Mattel Electronics released. T minus 10, 9, 8... Seven, six, we have ignition. Three, two, one, zero. We have liftoff. 
Control, this is Control. Deploy satellite. Mission complete. Recover satellite. While I've not been able to find a concrete number of how well Night Stalker sold back in the day, thanks to the Blue Sky Rangers site, I read that Montero was working on a sequel to Night Stalker entitled Miss Night Stalker. Since after the release of the original title, an increase in the size of cartridges became available, if Miss Night Stalker had been greenlit, it would have been a 12K game. And apparently, the way Montero saw it, the game would have featured more enemy robots as well as weapons, say, like a bazooka so you can blast your way through walls, and even the ability to have the maze scroll. Montero, it seems, left shortly after being given the assignment on Space Shuttle. And as the Blue Sky Ranger site points out, he left the game industry shortly afterwards. Although, he is listed as a designer on the 1986 Trivial Pursuit-inspired game, Mind Pursuit, for both the Apple II and Commodore 64. It was Peter Allen who was responsible for the graphics in Night Stalker, and Russ Leiblick who provided the memorable sounds in the game. Yet again, from the Blue Sky Rangers site, there was an amusing anecdote that revealed that Russ was happy with how the heartbeat sound of the game worked. So much so, that he would commandeer the remote control of his fellow programmers if they were playing Night Stalker, and turn the television volume up full blast. Actually, I just realized you might not know who the Blue Sky Rangers were. That was the name given to the group of programmers employed by Mattel Electronics at the time. It appears to have been Howard Polskin, in a June 19, 1982 article in TV Guide that gave the group their name. It stemmed from him sitting in on one of their Blue Sky meetings, which is where they would discuss current projects, as well as ideas for future titles. Polskin felt his article shouldn't refer to the group. The individual identities of the staff was something Mattel Electronics wanted to keep secret. The writer didn't want to just call them the application software programmers, which is why, after that meeting, he called them the Blue Sky Rangers, which is a moniker that obviously has stuck. Night Stalker tasks one player to attempt to navigate a dark underground maze, safely guiding their video game avatar past the rocky walls that make up the maze in an effort to survive as long as possible against the endless wave of robots that stalk them, as well as the paralyzing bites of a large creeping spider and a pair of bats. In fact, with the instructions provided with Night Stalker, it doesn't exactly provide a whole lot of backstory in this case. The manual states... Quote, your man is trapped in the maze. Robots relentlessly track him down. Keep him away from spiders and bats. Watch out for robot fire. React quickly. The key to survival is to destroy them before they get the man. Rack up as many points as you can. It's you against them to the end. End quote. Movement through the maze is controlled by the disc wheel on the Intellivision's hand controller, allowing players to move freely up and down as well as right and left although any of the rocky walls will halt movement when you come in contact with them. After choosing your difficulty on the keypad, pressing numeral 3 gives you a slow version of the game, with numeral 2 being a little quicker, numeral 1 being much faster, and just pressing down on the disc control will present the player with the fastest version of Night Stalker. As the game begins proper, the player will find their man safely within a bunker that is set in the middle of the maze. While inside here, the player is totally secure and immune from harm, at least until later in the game. Right off the bat, though, you will notice that electronic heartbeat that Russ Leiblick was so proud of.
While the game may not have an actual soundtrack to speak of, that steady and rhythmic heartbeat sound really works while you're playing the game. The two bats who start the game, hanging upside down from those rocky walls in the upper and middle right-hand side of the screen, will drop down and begin flying through the maze. As I previously mentioned, if a bat makes contact with a man, they will bite him, which causes the player to fall to their knees and then on their face, paralyzing them for a few precious seconds. In the earlier stages, that isn't the worst thing. But in later stages, when the robots are really moving at a good clip and shooting at you, you can see why you don't want to be stunned on the floor when the robots are taking shots at you. The bats can be shot by both the player and the robots, which will net you 300 points. Although, with their flapping animation, there are times that one of your precious shots might miss the beastie. The bats, after being dispatched, will reappear. That is until you've earned yourself 5,000 points in the game. Then, when you take out a bat, it will be replaced from then on by a gray robot, which is the lowest offering in the list of mechanical murderers trying to hunt you down. At the beginning of the game, in the upper left hand of the maze, is a giant spider web. Crawling from that area is the enormous green spider. Seriously, this thing must be the size of a large dog. It wanders around the maze in search for prey, man-sized prey and will cause you to fall over and be paralyzed if it makes contact with you. Shooting it will cause it to disappear, but another spider will soon emerge from the web. Actually, the web itself can be traveled through by both the player and robots, and there are times the shots from each will pass through the web, and other times it acts like a barrier. It seems rather random. Using a bullet on a spider will get you only 100 points. I suppose because it's easier to hit than the bats. Now, before I begin to talk about the dangers of those robots, let me take a moment and talk about the sole weapon the player has in the game. The gun, which kind of looks like a Sandman's gun from Logan's Run, actually. This item will appear in random spots around the maze. The player must run over the flashing yellow icon to pick it up. Once the gun is picked up, the player can, by pressing the up, down, left, or right icon on the keypad of the hand controller, shoot in that direction. Only one shot at a time, however. If the shot makes contact with a rocky wall or other part of the maze, it will disappear, and the player can fire again. This rule of one shot at a time also applies to the enemy robots. Although, since their sensors pick the player up when they are in range, they will basically just shoot rapid fire against the rocky walls. It can't reach the player, but it makes for an unnerving sound effect. Now in later stages, when there are multiple robots patrolling the maze, a player's shot can hit, say, a gray robot, causing it to explode in a satisfying visual effect of flying gears, as well as a metallic-sounding explosion. In addition, that bullet will travel through the first robot and keep going, so you might be able to take out more than one enemy this way. Now, here is the bad news. Each of these futuristic-looking guns only holds six shots. After the sixth bullet, the player is weaponless, like at the beginning of the game, and must attempt to go pick up a new one wherever it might have spawned, which, especially in later levels, appears to be in the most dangerous spot in the maze. By the way, you cannot shoot the gun while moving either. And although I didn't use it back in the day when I was first playing Night Stalker, since the Intellivision had two hand controllers, you could use one to control movement and the second controller to control which direction you wanted to fire. 
Okay, I guess it's now time to talk about the deadly robots you will face when playing Night Stalker. All robots make their appearance in the bottom left corner of the maze, which is a good spot in the beginning of the game to time your shots to blast them when they first appear, until you run out of bullets, of course. As I touched upon a moment ago, the first class of robot and the lowest and sort of least dangerous is the gray robot. This enemy just wanders around the maze, only taking a shot at you if you cross its path. Blasting one will earn you 300 points, and after a few seconds, a new gray bot will arrive. Remember, after you blast the bats, once earning 5,000 points, two gray robots will spawn instead which is where they can become dangerous in later levels. You can find yourself trapped by two wandering gray robots, with no place to run to avoid their deadly fire. One hit, and you've lost one of your beginning six lives. I should add, a player will earn an extra man for every 10,000 points they earn. Another change happens after the player has accumulated 5,000 points. The blue robot enters the maze. This foe, unlike the gray versions, will start to hunt down the player, and it isn't as easy to lose this robot like the other model. It explodes from a single shot by the player, and will earn you 500 points for the effort. Bear in mind, at this point you are contending with three robots in the maze, so you will have to constantly be on your guard. After a player has earned 15,000 points in Night Stalker, they will have to deal with the white robot. This mechanical menace appears to be on tank treads, and will continuously attempt to find the player wherever they are in the maze. Oh yeah, it also has an energy shield. It takes three shots to shatter the shield and take the white robot out, but you will be rewarded 1,000 points for each one you demolish. Once you've earned yourself 30,000 points, the white robot will be retired and replaced with a black version. And this foe almost looks like it's hopping through the maze, and it makes a point of coming straight after the player. It too has an energy shield, and even worse, it can let loose with white energy bolts. <laughs> These pulsing shots will disintegrate a player's shot before it can make contact with the black robot. At 50,000 points, its programming is altered to begin firing off yellow-hued energy bolts. Not only does it wipe out the player's shot, but it can blow away the safety of the bunker in the middle of the maze. You get 2,000 points for every black robot that is dispatched, but at this point in the game, it's getting harder and harder to survive the endless onslaught. And yet, there is one more deadly surprise waiting for the player in Night Stalker, when they have managed to roll the score to 80,000 points. The new robot that enters the maze is 100% completely invisible. The only way you can pinpoint where it is, is when it's flinging those yellow electric bolts at you. And naturally, it too has an energy shield that requires three shots. As you might imagine, at this point of the game, you're constantly running and hoping you won't come in contact with this invisible nightmare. Of course, you can also fire down the maze pathways, hoping it will hit this particular foe and reveal its location. 4,000 points is your reward for blasting an invisible robot out of existence. And once you've made it this far, you just have to see how long you can survive. Night Stalker really is a great game, and can be quite stressful when you reach these later stages. There were many summer afternoons at my grandparents when school was out they cheered me on as I managed to get higher and higher scores. Here is something of interest. Apparently before Night Stalker had shipped, there was a rather major change in the game. 
Yet again, thanks to the Blue Sky Rangers site, Montero originally had designed it where the spider would spin webs throughout the maze itself. The web would hinder the player by either using up their precious bullets to blast it out of the way, or if you tried moving through the obstacle, it would slow you down. The cause for altering the game came about when marketing began testing it. I've read that an unknown 12-year-old had a chance to play the game and was able to get further than anyone on the development team had before. So it was decided a new robot needed to be added to the mix to make Night Stalker more challenging. Obviously, since the cartridge only possessed a limited amount of memory, 4K I believe, something had to go for the new foe to be included. And sadly, this was the spider's ability to spin webs. Although that proposed sequel would have seen that element added to the game. But sadly, that never came to be. Night Stalker was one of the M-Network games to be ported to the Atari 2600. These were, of course, Intellivision titles and games produced by Mattel Electronics for their home console rival. It was programmed by Hal Finney and received a name change, entitled Dark Cavern. The gameplay remained mostly the same, although, and probably as expected, the Intellivision version is the superior game. In addition, when Mattel Electronics released their answer to the Commodore VIC-20 and Texas Instrument TI-99, with 1983's The Aquarius, Night Stalker was one of the 21 released games. Others being Lock and Chase, Tron Deadly Discs, Astro Smash, Burger Time, and Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, Treasures of Tarman to name a few. Night Stalker was also made available for the Apple II as well as the IBM PC. And now, these messages. Hills presents Intellivision. Intelligent television by Mattel. More sophisticated than any video game that has come before. Providing hours of entertainment for the entire family. Intellivision, with one of the clearest game displays available today. Find this system, plus a complete line of sports and video game cassettes at Hills, where our game is low prices every day. Now for your Atari 2600, M-Network Dark Cavern from Mattel Electronics. A video game of you against them. They're spiders, blobs, and robots, and you're a sitting duck. M-Network Dark Cavern. It'll have a surprising effect on your TV. Buy any two M-Network games by March 4th, and we'll send you one free. Night Stalker has been featured on a few different versions of plug-and-play collections, as well as on the PlayStation 3 with their Intellivision Gen 2 collection. Personally, I really do think that Night Stalker stands up. It's just as entertaining and challenging now as it was back then. But it sounds like we might not have seen the last of Night Stalker, because it appears to be one of the titles for the upcoming Intellivision Amico. And judging by the brief clip that was presented in the 2019 Gamescom trailer, it looks to be multiplayer now as well. I will naturally be sure to include that trailer in the article for this podcast over on the Pop Culture Retrorama site. I have countless hours of fond memories thanks to the Intellivision, and I will be totally honest, I am quite excited about the release of the Intellivision Amico. I will admit, I might be an easy sell, but I respect what Tommy Tallarico and the rest of the team at Intellivision Entertainment are attempting to accomplish, which is basically bringing the fun of playing together back. 
especially in the same room. I bring that up because, working at the arcade, that is one of the things we see impress a younger generation the most, especially on busy nights. There is absolutely nothing wrong with the next generation of home consoles and being able to play online with friends. But it does not match the excitement of getting a high score on Pac-Man with your friends, or sometimes strangers, slightly crowded around you cheering you on. Or, in a two-player competition, heckling you good-naturedly. And friends, I think that is about all I can share with you about Night Stalker. Beyond, as always, I want to thank you again for taking the time to listen to the show. I know I'm no expert. I'm just a fan of classic arcade and home console games and enjoy talking about them. The Diary of an Arcade Employee is available on iTunes. I'm working on rebuilding the podcast library, slowly. A result of switching from the retroist site to the pop culture retrorama one. You can check out daily posts by visiting www popcultureretrorama.com. Speaking of iTunes, it might be for the best if you subscribe to the show. I wasn't aware of this, but it took over a month for the Asteroids episode to show up on the iTunes page. Not sure what the situation with that was all about, but hopefully this was just a one-time thing. The Diary of an Arcade Employee is now available on Google Podcasts as well as Spotify. No matter how you listen to the show, if you have a moment and enjoy the podcast, why not give us a rating and a review to help us find new listeners? You can find out more about the Arcadia Retrocade by visiting Facebook. Or for daily posts, you can check out the Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast Facebook page. I share all manner of vintage arcade and home console fun multiple times a day. If you have any feedback or comments about the podcast, you can always reach me on Facebook or throw me an email at vicsagepopculture at gmail.com. You also can often find me posting videos of the arcade on my Instagram account, which is simply vicsage underscore. Naturally, I want to thank the Retroist. For over a decade, the Retroist provided a spot on the internet where fans of all things retro could visit and enjoy the best retro-related articles and podcasts. I certainly wouldn't have my own site or multiple podcasts without the Retroist support. Have a token on me as we listen to a clip of the game I will discuss on the next show. The humanoid must not escape. Attack it. This has been a Pop Culture Retrorama podcast. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. The Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast is not affiliated with or authorized by Mattel, Mattel Electronics, Intellivision Entertainment, or any of the businesses, magazines, and individuals that have been mentioned in the show. All music and sound clips from the mentioned video games are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purpose of review, criticism, and commentary only, and are not intended to infringe. End of line.